today, finishing up this chapter. And um, so, before we do, before I actually get into the text, let me kind of remind you, it's been a couple of weeks, so let me kind of remind you of where we've been going in the book of Daniel. So just by, by way of review, I have suggested that there are two questions that kind of serve as a, a, an undercurrent. They, they seem to uh, run throughout the book of Daniel. They're not always prominent, but I think they're always there. And it's important that we understand what these two questions are, because when we get into the book of Daniel, we're going to see all sorts of interesting imagery and beasts and monsters and all sorts of symbols and a variety and, and angelic messengers and, and dreams and visions and, and a number of different things. We're going to see God do amazing things in delivering His people. And so we need to keep in mind what Daniel is attempting to, or what God is attempting to communicate to us through His um, servant Daniel. And so the first question that we have addressed is this. How do we faithfully serve God in a pagan culture? You see, you need to remember that Daniel was an exile. He was living in Babylon, but that's not his homeland. His homeland was in Jerusalem. But you'll recall in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, the Bab- king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and besieged it. This was the first of three attacks on the city of Jerusalem. The third, in the third one, in 586 B.C., the, the city finally fell. But in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, enters into Jerusalem, lays siege to it, and he takes captive some of the people of Jerusalem. Of course, he only took the best. And he brought them, in, brought them out of Jerusalem into Babylon, where they would then serve in his court and basically serve the Babylonian Empire. Not only did he take people, but he also entered into the temple of God and took some of the gold vessels and some of the objects of worship and brought them back to the temple of his God and uh, put them in the temple of his God. And so it appears then that um, God has been defeated. And so Daniel is living in exile. And we want to ask ourselves the question, then how can a person who does not serve these pagan gods live in a culture and live in a way that is faithful to God? And I think this is especially relevant to us because after all in the New Testament, the New Testament authors often refer to our lives today as that of living in exile. And our culture is changing. It is not what it once was. A Christian worldview used to be dominant, but a Christian worldview is no longer the dominant worldview in American, or at least in Western society. I'm not saying that Western society was always Christian, but there was always a... It was at least, the Christian worldview was at least dominant. And that's not so, so, so much today. Our worldview is less and less Christian and more and more pagan. 
Much like Daniel. So then, how do you and I live as believers in a culture that is really pretty foreign to us, or at least considers us as odd? Our morals, our ethics are considered out of touch. Maybe old-fashioned, Victorian, prudish. At best, odd. Well, it's the same way, that's the same place Daniel was. Daniel had dietary uh, restrictions and he observed certain days of the week as holy and he prayed to a single God and, and he was seen as odd. We shouldn't be surprised. I hear so many people say, well, you know, we need to get back to be like the first, the early church, you know, the first century church. Well, I think we are getting there because the early church lived in exile. They were the odd ones out. They were not the dominant culture. When Christians first became Christians, they were not the dominant culture. They were odd. They were weird. People did not understand why Christians would dive into frozen rivers to save babies that the Roman people had thrown in to dispose of them. They didn't want the baby, so they threw them into the river. And Christians would risk their lives diving into frozen rivers to save babies. It was amazing to people. It was amazing that when a, a, a sickness broke out and everybody fled the area because of this communicable disease that the Christians stayed and ministered to the sick, oftentimes contracting the very disease that they were ministering to. And so people said, that's nuts. And they had a weird moral, they had weird morals and weird ethics. They, they spent their money in, in completely non-cultural ways and they held themselves and, and their word in, in ways that were not, not in alignment with the current culture. And people thought them odd. Well, that's why some of the New Testament authors, especially Peter, says we're exiles. Paul calls us ambassadors. In other words, we represent a different country. We're not of this country. We don't live, this is where we live, but this is not where we are from. Our king is not Caesar. Our king is Christ. And so, our first question then is, how do we live faithfully to a holy God in a culture that is contrary to to the words of God. But that presumes a second question. (coughs) That presumes that the God that we are serving is worth serving. In other words, it would demand that the God we're serving is the true God. Because if he's not the true God, if he is a weak God like the the Babylonian gods, or if he is um, an a limited God, like the gods of culture, then really, why bother? If He can't deliver, and if He doesn't know what's going to happen, if He is weak, then really, is He worth serving? Is He worth... The Christian life is hard. It's hard for a number of reasons. It's hard because, first of all, our culture and our society um, pushes against it. But also, our own fallen nature pushes against living for the Lord. It's much easier to give in. Much easier. 
But if God is God, and He is truly the God who has been revealed in the spot, then, he is, then it is worth serving Him faithfully. But we've got to be convinced of that. And so we have these two questions. How do we serve God faithfully in a culture that is anti-God, or at least doesn't care about God, and that is He the true God, and is He worth serving? So those are our two areas that we're addressing. Now in chapter 2, we're looking mostly at that second question, but I think we cannot ever forget that first question. So that's, I know, a very long Review, but I think it will prove helpful for us. Now, let me tell you where I hope to go today. So, by way of preview, this is the direction I plan on on moving. So, I want to continue answering that second question. And we're going to see that the God of Daniel and the God whom we serve is the God of history. Specifically, he's the God of the future. Now, we need to understand that he knows the future, but he just doesn't know the future because he has special insight into what's going to happen. He is not uh, just a superior predictor to all other so-called gods or prophets. He's not just a better forecaster of what might happen. The reason he's the God of the future is because he's the God who created the future. He is the one who made the future, and so he knows the future. Therefore, he is an accurate predictor of what's going to happen. Not because he kind of gets nine out of ten predictions right. (laughs) Or he just does a better job. He's not just a better Nostradamus. The reason God knows the future is because God has been there. God hasn't just been there, God made it. In other words, God is sovereign, and I know that is troublesome for so many people, but God knows the future. God knows knows what's going to happen tomorrow, and in a minute, and in 10 years, and in 20 years. Why does He know it? Because He made the future. It belongs to Him. So that's one of the things that we want to see. We should note also that, that not only has God know the future and know what's going to happen, let's just say, in ten years, but God has created all of the means that will bring about that future end. So, if we say that Christ is going to return, that's the future. God has also brought about all of the means to bring about His return. If somebody gets saved 10 years from now, your loved one, your, your family member gets saved 10 years from now, God already knows that. You don't. But God has already planned the means of get, bringing about the salvation of the one you're praying for right now. All right. So He's not only the end, but He's the means to the end. All right. So... That's one of the things we're going to see, that God is the God of history, not just past, not just present. He's the God of the future because He made the future. Daniel is a book that exalts God. We will see that God is distinct from the gods of pagan culture. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that what has happened is that Babylon invaded Jerusalem and, quote, took God captive. The reality however, is that God has invaded Babylon. 
Babylon thinks that they went and took some of the vessels of gold and silver out of the temple and put them in the temple of their God, thinking, oh, look, our God is more powerful than the God of Jerusalem. But the reality is this, that the God of heaven, whom Daniel serves, has now invaded Babylon. And the way he has invaded Babylon is he has spoken to the king. No need dealing with all of the armies. I'll go straight to the king. And he speaks to the king in a dream. And this would be a means by which the king would be able to relate and understand. And so, God is, in this evasion, what Yahweh is going to do is he is going to demolish all of the false gods of Babylon and demonstrate that he is the true God and hence he is the one to be served and adored and loved. He's going to demonstrate that those gods know nothing. They are weak and they cannot deliver. But I am the God who created everything and I am strong and I am mighty and I can deliver and I know all and I am sovereign. And he has invaded Babylon to demonstrate that he alone is God. But make no mistake about this. That God has invaded Babylon not to garner more territory, not to... Accumulate more wealth. God already has everything. Every, every atom of the universe belongs to God. He already got everything. He doesn't need more wealth. All right? Everything is His. He doesn't need, doesn't need anything. But He is a great missionary God and He is seeking the salvation even of pagan Babylonians even of a guy like Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, we will see God demonstrate his mercy and love to every single king that shows up in the book of Daniel. So God is invading Babylon, not for the purpose of greater territory, not for the purpose of wealth, but to demonstrate that he is glorious and that he can save. We should also note then, and one of the things we will see uh, this morning is that political structures are transient. They come and go. This will be very important. I'll expand on this a little bit more. And the final thing that I hope to see is we will be provided a brief glimpse of the future. Now, I'm going to be, I'm going to provide a very brief glimpse of the future. And it's going to be very general. I'm not going to get real specific. And the reason I'm not going to get real specific is because when we get to chapter 7, we're going to get much more specific. You should note that chapter 2 and chapter 7 are parallel. That that what occurs in chapter 2, we're going to see again occur in chapter 7. The visions are parallel. The the messages are very similar. But chapter 7 is going to give us much, much more detail. Now, chapter 7 um, and chapter 2, while parallel, they use different imagery. So today we're going to see the imagery of a, of a big statue of, of a man uh, of various, made up of various metals. I'll explain that in a bit. When we get to chapter 7, we're going to see that same vision, but instead of a statue made up of various metals, we're going to see those same kingdoms um, visualized as... Um, Beasts as animals. But the same thing is happening that is happening in chapter two will happen in chapter seven. So we'll get into some of the the more nitpicky details. So today, when we get to chapter seven, so today we're going to do a very uh, broad overview. And I think also that this that's the purpose of this is this is a broad overview. It is not meant to be Detail is purposely lacking. 
This just gives us a broad overview. So that's where we're at. You with me? You know where we've been? You know where we're going? So let's go. Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading. Actually in verse 28. Actually verse 27. Verse 26, no. Verse 1. Verse 27. You'll recall, Daniel, the the, the king has had a dream. If you haven't been here, the king has had a dream. And basically he's been, uh, he's put forth, he has said, okay, so I want you to, I want my wise guys, uh, my cabinet, to tell me the, not only what the dream means, but you need to tell me both the dream and what it, and the interpretation of the dream. And of course, his wise guy said, well, nobody's ever done that. That's impossible. And he was going to kill everybody. So Daniel says, give me a few days and I'll tell you what the dream and its interpretation is. So now Daniel is coming before the king to tell him both the dream and the interpretation. Verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turned to what, to what, what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mystery has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that, ye, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth this was the dream now we will tell its interpretation before the king you O king are the king of kings to whom the god of heaven has given the kingdom the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another, then, then another, third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So, like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, 
and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel, and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and made him the ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and the chief prefect prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. And this is the word of God. Well, I want to begin then just uh, with Daniel revealing the dream. And I find it interesting because the king asked him and says, Daniel, can you reveal this dream? And Daniel's answer is no. Well, then what good are you? I love verse 28, but there is a God in heaven. But there is a God in heaven. No, King, I I have no idea. What you've asked is impossible. I cannot do what you've asked. But there is a God in heaven. And he has made known what is going to take place in the future. And so Daniel tells the king, what your dream was is about the future. And I'm going to, we're going to get to that. And, I, and he tells him, he says, this was your dream. As for you, O king, while you're on your beds and your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. Um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 31. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. And I find this interesting because he's interpreting the dream and he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, were looking. And I... It's fascinating because Nebuchadnezzar is perhaps the most powerful guy around. He's a bigwig. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is reduced to a spectator. Nebuchadnezzar is not accustomed to being a spectator. He is, as Daniel said, the king of kings. He is a a great king. He is a great ruler. He is the one who commands and it gets done. But the God of heaven has just dropped a truth bomb on Nebuchadnezzar. You are a mere spectator of events. You are not the one who raises up kings, and you are not the one who deposes kings. You are merely a spectator. Nebuchadnezzar might might not have thought that. He might have thought, no, I'm the one who raises up kings. And you might recall that when he went into Jerusalem and defeated Jerusalem, what did he do? He installed a king over Jerusalem who would then pay tribute to him. I'm the one who makes up kings. I'm the one who raises up kings. I go into a city, destroy it, and raise up a ruler to, to rule in my place. I'm the one who does that. Oh, no, you're a mere spectator. He might think, I am the one who destroys kingdoms. I go in, I bring in my army, and all of the great kingdoms of the past I destroy. I'm the one who raises up kings. I'm the one who casts down kings. And God is showing Nebuchadnezzar, you are a powerful, powerful, powerful man. But your power is derived. 
It does not. It is not intrinsic. It comes from somewhere else. You are a spectator, and I am the Lord. He can only watch. He is not sovereign. And then he describes this statue. And the statue is uh, described in a variety of terms. It says it's great, it's large, it's of extreme splendor, it's awesome, it's made of various materials. Um, you know, a head of gold, and then silver, and then bronze, and then the feet of iron and mixed with clay. And he describes this great statue. And then the interesting thing is, he says, well, there's this, after that, there's this stone. And the stone is not man-made. It's not of human origin. And this stone strikes at the feet of this great statue and the entire image collapses. And so this image of various materials then turns to chaff and is blown away. We see in Psalm chapter 1 that the wicked are like chaff which the wind drives away. And this And as the statue of metal turns into chaff and is blown away by the wind, it is replaced by another, by the stone growing into a great mountain that fills the earth. That's the vision. A great statue made of various materials. A a stone not made with hands destroys the whole thing and and the stone now grows and fills the whole earth. That's, That's what it is. All right, well, good, Daniel. Good job. What does it mean? I'm about to tell you. Before I do, let me give you some preliminary observations um, before I get there. Whatever this dream means, and especially when we get to Daniel chapter 7, I think we need to be cautious to realize that this is a list of world empires, but it is not an exhaustive list of world empires. Um, I think its purpose is to describe the course of history from captivity until the consummation of the kingdom of God. So, and it's specifically um, dealing with God's people from exile, from captivity to consummation, how God works through these kingdoms to bring about his purposes. We should also note that there is a devolution, that is, that the, that the materials get less and less valuable. We should note <coughs> that, and be aware of the transitory nature of human kingdoms compared to the reign of God. In other words, all of the kingdoms, no matter how beautiful, no matter how glorious or temporary, they come and they go. But the divine kingdom is one that endures forever. We should also note there will be certain certainty of judgment, that the kings of the earth will be judged by the king of heaven. We would also like to note that the image is destroyed as a unit, and I think that this is very important for our understanding of what's going on here. The image is destroyed as a unit, and so... Even though previous kingdoms were long extinct, they are all destroyed together. And so the head of gold, the Babylonian, I'll describe this, is one kingdom and it goes extinct. And it's replaced by another kingdom. 
that then gets replaced by another kingdom, that then gets replaced by another kingdom. But in this particular vision, the stone that is cut out of a mountain without hands destroys them all. So even those kingdoms that are no longer in existence, they are also destroyed. And I think that's going to be really important for us to understand how this whole, what, at least the big picture of what's going on here. So, They are destroyed. All of the kingdoms of men are destroyed in unity. And the kingdom represented by the stone strikes. Because the kingdom represented by the stone strikes at the last kingdom, I believe that infers the commencement of the heavenly kingdom begins during the time of the fourth kingdom. Does that make sense? Kind of. Okay. So whenever the fourth kingdom comes, because the stone strikes at that kingdom and destroys all other kingdoms, I believe that is the commencement of this divine kingdom. I don't know that I don't think it's the consummation. I just think so it's in other words, it may be the start. I don't think it's the finish, but it's certainly the beginning. All right. So What are these kingdoms? Well, I'm going to stick with a fairly conservative viewpoint on this. There are a variety of ideas and and views, and some better than others. But I think the best, and I think most conservative Bible students would would agree with, with this. And that is the first kingdom is Babylon. And by the way, probably nobody disagrees with that. Probably one of the only one of the few verses in the Bible where just about everybody, liberal, unbeliever, believer, conservative, fundamentalist, we probably all agree on this one passage of the Bible. I'm sure somebody doesn't, but for the most part, we probably all got consensus on this one that you, O King, are the head of gold. It is the Babylonian kingdom. And I love the way this goes. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Notice his, he is the king of kings, but it's a derived, it's a derived authority. It did not come from himself. It did not come from his wisdom, his power, his abilities. It came from God, the God of heaven, but there is a God in heaven, and he is the one who has given you power and strength. And so that wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the fields, or the birds of the sky, he, God, has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them. Everything, this has to be a shock to Nebuchadnezzar. This has to be some boldness on the part of Daniel to say, you know what, you're a spectator. I know I'm a slave, (laughs) and I'm before the most powerful king in the known world, but you are a mere spectator, and you are a mere participant, and whatever power you have, it is not yours. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) And Daniel doesn't come across as trembling in his boots. He comes across speaking the authoritative word of God without fear. This is the way it is, O king. Do you see how though God got a, an audience here, speaks to the king, and he says, I'm going to reveal my dream. Once you reveal it accurately, the king's going to be all ears. He will listen to you. And so he tells them, you're a mere spectator. Your power is derived. 
And then after you, O king, there's going to be another one, which is an amazing thing. Again, that Daniel says, oh, by the way, you're going to be defeated. (laughs) Your kingdom will not last forever. You, O king, aren't going to last forever. You will die, and your sons after you will die. And eventually, this great empire is going to come to an end, and there will be another great empire that comes in and replaces it. We believe that this is the Medo-Persian Empire that reigned from 539 to 331 B.C. Then after that, there will be another kingdom represented by, by bronze. And I believe that this is the Grecian Empire. And we'll especially see that when we get to uh, Daniel chapter 8. I think Daniel chapter 8 focuses a lot on this third kingdom. So, um, anyways, this was the, the reign of Alexander the Great. And the Grecian Empire, which reigned, um, which reigned from 331 B.C. to 146 B.C. And then after that came... Uh, the Empire of Rome, which ruled from 146 B.C. to approximately 400 A.D. And we should know that it is identified by iron, strength and power. Um, and, but it was a mix, there was a mixture of weak and strong, and so it seems to imply some sort of inner conflict going on with this. But there's a fifth kingdom. We can't miss the fifth kingdom. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the four kingdoms, what are they? We forget there's a fifth kingdom. And this is where I really want to spend the rest of our time, dealing with the fifth kingdom. I think that's kind of the key here. Fifth kingdom is a kingdom that is of divine origin. I would suggest it is a messianic kingdom. And of course, everybody wants to know when does this messianic kingdom begin? When does all of this happen? We'll have to come back when we get to chapter 7. <laughs> a little cliffhanger there. So, with that in mind, we all kind of, so there's the dream, there's the interpretation. Basically, the king has seen a variety of kingdoms and kings and said, they come and go. But there is going to be one that doesn't come and go. So with that, let me give you a few thoughts. <coughs> During the time of the fourth kingdom, according to this text, it is made up of, the fourth kingdom is one that is made up of iron because it is strong, it is powerful, it is awesome. Rome was known for its strength. Rome was known for its power. Rome was not necessarily known for its beauty. Whatever beauty Rome had, it was derived from, the, they Stole it from the Greeks. Rome was not known for necessarily for its beauty. It was known for its strength and its power and its conquest. Makes, strength, makes sense to call it the kingdom of iron. But we should note that during the time of this powerful fourth kingdom, this strong empire that in a little outpost town somewhere in this empire, just south of the city of Jerusalem, a child was born. And this was pretty much a non-event. Really, nobody in the kingdom paid attention to it, and nobody really even cared. Few people might have cared. Heaven cared. Heaven sent an angelic choir. And heaven told a few shepherds. And they rejoiced. Later, some 
Magi, some wise guys from the east. Many believe they came from Babylon. I wonder where they heard about a savior who would be born. Hmm. Most people feel that the Magi from the east learned of the savior from Daniel. And they began waiting and watching, perhaps. And they came. But for the most part, the birth of this child was pretty insignificant in the whole realm of this iron kingdom. This was not a Caesar being born. This was not royalty. This was just a poor couple in a little dinky town that nobody cared about. Approximately 30 years after this insignificant birth, after this child had grown in grace and favor with both men and God, about 30 years after that, this child, Jesus, the Christ, appears on the scene. He'd been tempted in the wilderness. And he comes to where the crowds were. And he says this, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's an amazing statement. That's his first sermon. It's a big one. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? The kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is now present. The kingdom exists where the king is. And where his authority and influence is. The kingdom of heaven is now at hand. I want to read to you another passage out of the book of John. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Out of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus had been doing miracles. And he, one of the miracles that Jesus did was he cast out demons. And understand, this is not just for the purpose of doing a spectacular work. He is demonstrating that he has authority over hell. It says this. Oops. I have the wrong text. Can you put that text up there? I think it's the next one. Matthew 12. And and the people that had accused Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of demons, and this is what he says. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then he goes on, And how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Jesus is saying that I cast out demons, and by doing so, the kingdom of God has come. I have bound the strong man. He is no longer... um, no longer has his way. I am the king. He is not. And I cast them out. The kingdom of God has come. When Jesus was standing before Pilate, 
Pilate asked him some questions. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? This is what Jesus ends up saying. He says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everybody who is of the truth hears my voice. Are you a king? I am a king, but I have a different kingdom. See, my kingdom is not one of gold or silver or bronze or iron mixed with clay. Mine is one that is not humanly derived. Mine is divinely derived. And it will crush every man-made kingdom that exists. This is the kingdom of God. This is the stone cut without hands. You'll recall that Jesus then was summoned to execution by Pilate. You remember what he was executed for. Not for claiming to be a Messiah, claiming to be a king. This is the king of the Jews. And he was put to death because he was understood that he was saying he is a king above Caesar. And they put him to death, called him the king of the Jews. Here's the thing, though. That should have been the end of the story, but you know that's not the end of the story. Because three days later, this king, because he is not a human king, escapes death, overcomes death, overpowers death, comes, raises himself from the dead, and then goes to his 11 followers, his 11 disciples, and he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And remember this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is kingly speech. I have all authority. Now you, go and fill the earth with the king's glory. Make disciples. This was the mandate to Adam and Eve. Fill the earth with the glory of God. Adam and Eve failed. Israel, the Son of God, failed. Jesus, the Son of God, where they failed. He defeated Satan in, in the wilderness, overcame him in the, um, by his power, raised from the dead, and says, Now I have all authority. I have all power. Go fill the earth with the glory of the king. Make my kingdom spread. They actually believed it. They actually did what he said. They they didn't actually understand what was going on. But in Acts chapter 1, this is what they asked. Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? They're misguided here. They're still thinking a, a kingdom of gold or of silver or of bronze or of iron mixed with clay. But this is not the kingdom I'm talking about. I'm talking about a kingdom cut out of a mountain without hands that's that crushes all of those kingdoms and grows and fills the earth. That's what I'm talking about. Now, 
It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by His authority, but you will be receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. My kingdom is not a kingdom that is local. It is not confined to the city of Jerusalem. It is not a kingdom that is regional. It is not confined to the area of Judea. It is not even one that is ethnic. It, is, it goes out to the Samaritans, and it is one that fills the entire earth with the glory of the king. That's my kingdom. And you have power to go and make disciples and bring about that very work. So I would suggest to you then that the kingdom commences with the incarnation. I don't think that it is consummated. I think it's consummated at the second coming. This should fill us with optimism. This should fill us with optimism because we should, I don't know, some, sometimes we, things seem to be deteriorating. We wonder whether or not our governmental system is, what kind of duress it's under. I don't know, maybe it's under duress, maybe it's not. It may come, it may go. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy our our freedoms and the government that we have. I believe it is God-given and it honors God in many ways. But let me tell you this. If you think for a moment to place your trust in the American experiment, you are sorely misguided because kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Presidents come and presidents go. Whether this is a kingdom of gold or silver or bronze, I don't know. Maybe it's not even on the world scene whatsoever. But one of these days, here's what I can tell you. For a certain fact, this kingdom will fall. Why do I know that? Because all kingdoms fall. That's just what they do. They're all transitory. Every single one of them. Except one. There's one kingdom that goes on forever. So here are the implications. We should then live in hope. We should be the most hopeful people there are. We look around and we say, oh my goodness, look at how terrible the church is. The church is dying. I want to let you know this, that the reports of the death of the church are highly exaggerated. I know this because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. Now, it may look completely different. It may, be, may not be mega churches. Maybe. It may not look like what it has. It, this may be what the church looks like. Small group of people meeting in a local area and we go out from here and we minister the gospel to people who are in need. Maybe that's what it looks like. Maybe it's really simple. Maybe it doesn't have light shows and, and smog machines and fog machines. I should say not smog machines. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't look like that. Maybe it looks different. But I want you to know something. The kingdom of God is victorious. And the kingdom of God is eternal. And where the king reigns, that's where the kingdom is. I pray the king reigns here today. Hence the king is present. What a beautiful truth that is. And when you walk out of here, guess where the king is? He sent his Holy Spirit. So the king is with you. The kingdom of God then is in you. Why? Because the king is in you. You go out and make disciples. And you talk about the glorious kingdom. 
I'm an ambassador. I'm living in exile. People say, you're odd. Of course I'm odd because I live from a, I've come from a different country. The customs of my country are odd. They're weird. But they're eternal. And they're joyful. And they're hopeful. And they give eternal life. And you can become part of this kingdom as well. Hence, we should evaluate how we are living. Am I living for the statue or am I living for the stone? See, I'm not asking you, I'm not saying that everybody now has to become a missionary or a pastor or a clergy. Daniel was a politician living in a pagan society and he lived for God as a politician in a pagan society. And he lived faithfully for God as a pagan, as a, as a politician in a pagan culture. So, do what God has called you to do. As He called you to be an accountant, be an accountant and glorify God in your accounting. As He called you to stay home and raise kids, then glorify God there. You are, you can live for the kingdom as you raise your kids at home. What has God called you to do? Are you a CEO? Are you a laborer? Are you unemployed? You can glorify God where you are. You can live for the stone. Even in the midst of exile. Are we living for the things that are eternal? How do I utilize my resources that I've been given? Am I using them for things that last? Everything we have is going to fade away and everything we invest in in this, in this culture is going to die and fade away. I'm not saying don't get stuff. I'm just simply saying, how are you prioritizing? Did you know this? That when you became a Christian, God gifted you with spiritual, with at least some sort of gifting, some ability to edify and build up the kingdom of God. Do you know that? It's not something that's reserved for clergy or elders or pastors. You, you, with the Spirit of God dwelling in you, have been gifted to edify and build up the body of Christ. How are you doing? Are you using those, that which God has given to you to build up the kingdom of God? Or are you a spectator? Why aren't you investing? If you're investing in something, well, I don't have time because I've got all this other stuff. What other stuff is going away? Are you investing in the eternal? I'll conclude with this. Here's what we should take from here. here. You should take from this that, first of all, God is in control of everything. God is in control of everything. The tragedy that happened to you last week, God is in control of. The tragedy that you're not aware of, that it's going to happen tomorrow, God is in control. God is not caught off guard. He is not caught by surprise. He knows exactly, and you are His child, and He will do everything necessary to bring glory to His name through you. God is in control. He knows the future. Why wouldn't you place your trust in Him who knows what's going to happen? Here's the other thing. Kingdoms of the earth, kingdoms of men are transitory. They come and they go. But the kingdom of God endures forever. And finally, with this, living for the kingdom of God is not only our greatest investment, it, is a, it will be our greatest joy. When we seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will be added to us. And living for the kingdom of Christ will bring us the greatest amount of joy. Do you want joy? I'll tell you, put God first because it's eternal and you will have joy that you've never, ever imagined. Pause for just a few moments and we think about these things. Then we'll pray and then we'll close.